Matthew 18, we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. The message is entitled, Reconciling a Sinning Brother. In chapter 18, we have the fourth major discourse Jesus gave to his disciples. The first one, as you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. The second, Jesus pronounced the provisions of personal cause regarding the kingdom. And that was in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 42. The third one is the proclamation of the kingdom through kingdom parables, all of Matthew 13. Now the fourth major discourse here, Jesus proclaimed the Christian ethic of disciples as to our responsibility we have to one another in the kingdom. The disciples of the kingdom of heaven are to be marked by humility, loving care, and forgiving one another. The entire chapter and discourse is intertwined with these three characteristics, the genuine evidence of recognizing one's lost condition, owing everything to God, and the responsibility to impart forgiveness as we have received and restored relationships. These um, virtues are the evidence of being the greatest in the kingdom. It is found four times the kingdom, verse 1, 3, 4, 23. And so the prompting of the discourse was the question of personal greatness in the kingdom by the disciples in verse 1 of chapter 18. In view of their personal privilege and the works they had been involved when they were discussing among themselves, this was the usual custom uh, of their topic as to who's the greatest. They're traveling to Capernaum and Jesus asked them what they were talking about and they became silent. Mark 9, 34. Kind of you like a parent when your kids are doing it. What? What's going on? Nothing. The dirty dozen. Jesus perceived their thoughts, Luke 9, 27 tells us, or 47. He knew everything. Can you imagine? He got like, like, like behind or get in front about 50 yards so he can't hear us. Wow. Jesus took a, a little child and used him as an object lesson of humility enter the kingdom of God. The greatness in the kingdom is that. Verse 2 through 4. We'll see that tonight. Nicodemus referred to the new birth. Same thing. Humility comes from being born again. John 3, 3. Jesus declared the severe eternal judgment for those destroying the faith of a believer or to lead them astray from verse 5 to 9. And Jesus then warned about looking down on other believers for God values and rejoices over every person he saves, verse 10 through 14. And then Jesus set out the process to confront a believer that sins against another believer to reconcile them and restore fellowship in verse 15 through 20. And finally, Jesus illustrated the absurdity and the consequences of, of not forgiving by the parable of the wicked servant, verse 21 to 35. This is a crucial chapter for the Christian ethic. You're a disciple? That means you're a student, you're a learner, you're a pupil, you're not a flake. You don't get that the wind blow you here and there. You stand fast for Jesus. Not for me. Not for Calvary Chapel. For Jesus Christ. And so, let's look to the process to confront a believer who has sinned against another, which is recorded for us here. Um, 
verses 15 to 20. Let me read for us. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, the process to confront a believer who has sinned against another is characterized by the following. First, we have the private confrontation in verses 15 and 16. Secondly, you have the public confrontation in 17 and 18. And lastly, the corporate representation in verse 19 and 20. He begins with the private confrontation, verses 15 and 16. Notice in 15, the reason to confront another believer is because they have sinned against you. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, this is for every believer. This is not for leadership. It will end up with leadership, but this is for everybody who is a disciple, all right? This is not a special class who are the wise, you know, fungus among us that grow or whatever, okay? This is for every believer, all right? The offense is not something subjective in the mind of a person. A lot of people have thin skin today. Toughen it up. Roll around the ground. Um, it, is based, it is not based on emotions or feelings against a person. It is not based on perception of a person or what they say, what they thought, but an actual thing. It's not disliking someone. The offense has been committed by a brother. The word brother Adolphus identifies one who has been born again, literally from the, from, from the same womb, spiritually in the family of God. This is a real actual sin, a real actual act or deed, which, again, this offense comes in various ways, word, deeds, and actions, something like that. Now, the phrase used, sins against you, the word sins, Amartano means to miss the mark. We've told you before, like they used to put a hoop and you shoot arrows, and if you missed it, they called you a sinner. You missed the mark. Okay? The error is active here indicates a specific act of sin still affecting the person, the relationship. This kind of sin cannot be defended or excused or ignored. But it is a grave matter that cannot be permitted to go on without dealing with it. Most people don't want to deal with conflict. Now, I don't want a conflict, but if you want to fight, let's go for it. All right? Problems don't go away. You've got to deal with it. You married? You know what I'm talking about. All right? Now, the responsibility to confront the sinning believer falls on the innocent and injured believer. Listen, go and tell him his fault between you and him 
alone. The person sinned against is to go. It is not a suggestion, it's not advice, it's not an opinion, it's an imperative command in the present active tense. To not do it is to disobey Jesus Christ, and it's going to compound in sin and in problems. The common opinion in response of most people who are sinned against, the injured party, is, well, I didn't do nothing, he should come to me. No, 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 no. Jesus says, shut up. He says, you go to them. When we believe that they should come to us, this mindset reveals our lack of humility. What goes before this, the beginning chapter, and exposes our pride, revealing that we are the least of the people in the kingdom. We're not great. We just think we're great. Wow, how embarrassing. Welcome to Christianity 101. The going is to tell him his fault notice between you and him alone or her. The word falter means to convince or convict with the idea of bringing to light the offense they committed. So in other words, you don't dilly-dally. You know, I want to kind of this and that. I said, no, you go and you deal with straightforward issues. You say, you know, you lied about me or whatever it may be. You deal with it. The impaired heiress active tense here, it is to be really done. Not sidestep. Not if you start going and going, well, you know, and you make excuses, you don't go. No, no, no. You go. Because both of you know exactly the sin. The fact that you are alone reveals your character and integrity to deal with them and resolve the matter. Your intent is not to embarrass them or humiliate them, but simply to acknowledge their sin and be reconciled. The most important thing is the attitude of humility which Jesus has spoken about in the first part of the chapter. When you share with that person, not accusing, not hostile, not adversarial, Otherwise, the whole thing blows up in our face, right? Simple. Look at 15 still. The hopeful expectation is to clear things up. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. The purpose of confronting the sinning brother is to in hope that they hear you. The word hear means to listen. And if you listen, then they confess, they demonstrate godly sorrow, and they ask forgiveness. And that's good. Four times it's found, 15, 16, and 17, four times, here, here, here. Whether he hears or not hears, it's used like that. We go in faith and obedience, having prayed to God to prepare both of our hearts. So this is not just intellectual, mechanical thing, you think you're bad or you got courage or you're whatever. No, you prayed about it. You've been praying for this man, this woman. You've been praying for yourself. You're going to do this thing, okay? You're trusting God for it, not your words or anything else. But the shocking thing is that it doesn't mean they're going to listen. Let me shock you even worse. The majority of Christians that are confronted don't, don't listen. They make excuses. They justify. Or they just get up and leave. Welcome to American Christianity. Wow. 
I've been around for 40-some years as a pastor. The goal, notice, in 15, an emphasis is on the mending of the fractured relationship to reestablish the right relationship with each other, to forgive and reconcile them into fellowship with you again. You have gained your brother. There is the emphasis. The word gain is a commercial word for profit or gain, wealth. The indicative error is active, is in the case the purpose is never revenge, vengeance, or mere punishment, but reconciliation to restore that brother in Christ or sister. It's a game. I need you, you need me. We fit in the same body. We have the same Lord. Hmm. Look at 16. The next instruction follows. To confront the same believer who has refused to hear you or acknowledge their sin. But if he will not hear, take with you two, one or two, which would be three at this point. The one-on-one is always the best and most effective way to deal with sin between two people. But they at times refuse to acknowledge their sin. Welcome to the human race. And if we as Christians don't walk in the Spirit and humble ourselves, we will choose to respond in the flesh. And we will just make things worse for ourselves, between us and God, and everyone else connected to that. It's like throwing a stone in a lake. Those ripples will hit and reach the utter shores of that lake, regardless of how big it is. Now, only two people know about the sin and what was said between them both at first. So you have minimized the information to the lowest number of people possible so that there be no gossip or anything else come from it or slander. No one ever need to know about the confrontation, about the meeting, or about the sin. So if it gets out, it's easy to find out who has the big mouth. There's two people. What genius Matthew 18 is to keep your life clear and pure and the church. If we live in the spirit and obey God's word. And we walk humbly. Not proudly. The addition of one or two now enlarges the circle of information. The word take is another imperative command. The error is active again. The intent is still to minimize the number of people possible for confidentiality. The concern is also for the protection of the guilty person to not be marked or looked down by others. So if you dealt with somebody about it and it was resolved, that's it. Nobody knows. If, if, he, if he didn't listen to you, you'll go to two or three. Now you've got a little more numbers that, that know this. Okay? But the same principle follows. The addition of two or three are for verifying what the person 
whose sin says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Verse 16 says the word witness, martus, means one who is suspected or in anything he can testify on what he saw or what he heard. The principle comes from the law and the New Testament also. Deuteronomy 19.15, John 8.17, Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 13.1 and 1 Timothy 5.19. Two to three witnesses, okay? Even our jurisprudence law, that's what it's based on, okay? Now, the two or three persons are to be people of character and spiritual maturity in Christ, able to be trusted and have confidentiality. All right? Very important. So you can see behind all this, it's not just mechanical. You're praying. You're letting God direct and guide you. You're taking step by step, okay? The word for word there is rima, not logos. The spoken word. That every spoken word may be established, which means to cause, to make, to stand. So the two and three plus the one makes two... uh, or three or four now are witness, right? So there's three and then the fourth one. So you're witness what is being said and heard so that you are there to say that. Many people don't understand that. In a wedding, when you invite people, the people that are there as, as, as witnesses, they're there as witnesses of what you're pledging to that woman or that man so that if you ever decide to divorce them, they're the first ones that get in your face. But that would never happen today. They just want to party. So establish the accuracy of the guilty party that nothing be denied or twisted. At this point now, as I said, there's four to five people who hold the information. Once again, if anything gets out, it's still easy to find out, right? You got four to five people, right? You go right down the line. What genius. Simplicity. The guilty person will be confronted if they lie to another about the situation. The guilty party will be confronted again if they attempt to alter gossip or malign the innocent believer. You cannot allow it to stand that way if you're a Christian or part of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, all of this is being said in the midst of fallen people, okay? We're living in reality here, okay? But you know it's possible in Christ, right? If we obey and trust God and humble ourselves, very, very possible. You know, a wise parent does the same thing. Uh, He or she confronts their children alone. They don't confront them in front of the other children because they're seeking them to acknowledge their error and repentance. They're not there to shame them or embarrass them, right? Hmm. Many um, things can deceive us and blind us as believers. Sin, Satan, the sinful world. Self-deception is the worst. Because you forget who you are and where you came from. And after years, um, it it can happen. You know, you all of a sudden get to the point you think uh, you were really somebody you never were. Some of the worst people are people in ministry. Pastors, elders, evangelists. Wow. 
one of the ways um, we care for each other is by confronting sin in the life of one we love. We don't confront somebody because we hate them. You as a parent confront your child because you love them. James 5, 19 and 20 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner, what does he call him? A sinner. From the air of his way will save a soul from death. That's spiritual death. That's not physical death. And covers a multitude of sins. Who's he talking to? Brother, a Christian. One sin left alone can be the first step to walk away from Christ. If you don't deal with it. Doesn't mean it happens, but the possibility is there, right? The manner of confronting a person is in humility. As Jesus illustrates it with the disciple as he takes this little challenge, Luke says he takes him in his arms. We're not to exalt ourselves above others, but um, it does not mean that we don't confront one another. We're not to disdain or look down on each other or others, but it doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. We're to look out for the best of each other. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Who's he talking to? Christians. I'm not talking to non-believers. Non-believers are deceived. And because we're still fallen people, we have the potential to deceive ourselves. And of course, what we do is we pick up our toys and we go play somewhere else. In a yard that we aren't held accountable. In a place we can do whatever we want. But remember, if, if that's the environment wherever you're going to go, then there's worse people than you. And that's not good. Wow. Aren't you glad you came to the church to be insulted this morning? A mirror insults you every time you look into it. Do you get mad at your mirror? I hope not. I don't think so. God's word tears us apart, ladies and gentlemen. God's word shows me who I am. I am a sinner. And if I don't allow the spirit of God and the word of God to transform me, God help me and everybody else around me. The motive behind any reconciliation, forgiveness of sins is God's agape love. Knowing we have been forgiven of all our sins. Knowing that our debt to God was prob uh, probably much greater than those of others who have sinned against us. And knowing that no one will ever sin against me as much as I have sinned against God. Wow. First Peter 4, 8 says... And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This was a private confrontation. Second comes the public confrontation, 17 and 18. In 17, the believer is to go to the church to seek reconciliation as the third step. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, this being that the first two steps have failed to resolve the sin 
against the other brother. The first step, one-on-one, -on -one, refuted. The second step, two or three, refuted. The third step is to tell the church about the sinning believer so that the church can confront him. Now, the word church, as you know, is ecclesia, called out once. And the church is uh, the comprised members of the body of Christ. But the church um, consists of Christians, helpers, deacons, elders, bishops, teachers, and pastor teachers. They're all Christians. They're all disciples. The church is mentioned by Jesus here, but notice that it doesn't exist yet. It's just a dirty dozen right now. And other disciples that are around, okay? The word church appears only two times in the Gospels. Both of them in Matthew. The first was in chapter 16, verse 16, where Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The second is right here. No other place is it found in any of the Gospels. You know where the most numerous word times the word church is? Book of Revelation. Interesting. Now, notice the example of the first church council will help us here for the proper interpretation of what the church may indicate. In Acts 15.4, as you know, they were trying to bring the Gentiles under Jewish control, making a Christianity an extension of Judaism to bring the Gentiles under circumcision and the law and everything else. And when they got together, it says, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church. And the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Acts 15.4. And who were the ones that dealt with the issues? The apostles and the elders. The church was present, they were, but they first went to the elders. So, in view of this, I take the word church in our text to mean that the first application is to the elders and pastors to deal with the issue, to resolve the matter. Once again, to minimize the number of people in each step to protect the guilty and the innocent party with people of confidentiality. Okay? So that as I'm ministering here, I may know of one or two or whatever, but everybody else doesn't. Because you know how we are. Chismosos. <laughs> Gossipers. Slanders. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Hmm. Listen carefully to 1 Timothy 5.20. Paul says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Wow. That doesn't mean every time. It means if someone's rebellious and doesn't hear, sometimes it has to come from the pulpit. Now, I've never had to do this, but I'm to be willing to do it if I need to. Like this case, we run, all, run it all the way to the end as we finish, and the person doesn't, and we excommunicate them, and they don't want it, and they show up, I'll call you out from the pulpit. I'm supposed to do that. Okay? I've never had to, but I'm ready. I don't want to, but I'm ready. Just like a parent. Doesn't want to discipline the child, but I'm ready. Do I think I'm better than you? Nope. I'm obeying the word of Jesus Christ. And you shouldn't get tweaked about it. 
lets you become the child instead of a mature adult in Christ. At every step, the concern is the benefit of the guilty and innocent party to continue in fellowship without anybody bagging on them or anything else. Now, notice in 17 still, the sinning believer, for his ongoing refusal to acknowledge and turn from the sin, they are to be put out of the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. This fifth step for refusing to repent, refusing the one-on-one confrontation, refusing the two-to-three confrontation, refusing the leadership confrontation, refusing the congregation's confrontation, the fifth and final step is to treat the sinner and brother, sister here as an unbeliever. Listen to what he says. Let him be as a heathen and a tax collector. The phrase, let him be, is an imperative command in the present active. If you don't do that, I don't do that, and this starts with regular Christians, it ends up with leadership, then we are disobeying and dishonoring the Lord. If you as a parent don't confront your child, you're not a parent. You're not even their friend. You're their enemy. Wow. This is not a suggestion. It's not to be ignored. The article is present here in the Greek. It's a respective class outside the commonwealth of Israel. A Gentile, which is heathen, or a tax collector. In other words, they had no part of Israel. They were disdained. The purpose, again, is that they may reflect, sense the full weight of their sin, their spiritual loss, and repent to be restored. This is not for mere castigation. Which of you just are, are just waiting for your kid to do something so you can knock his head off? Now, we know there's evil parents, but that's not the norm. Okay? Lest they depart from Christ and perish. There's the danger. Look at 18. The authority and truth for such spiritual discipline is delegated to the believer and the church. The authority is absolute in the highest. Assuredly, I say to you, the word assuredly, amen, as you know, it's up front. In the sense that saying, listen, this is very important, this is absolute truth, pay attention to it. Jesus speaking, he cannot lie. The one speaking is Jesus, I say to you, God in human form here, Jesus quotes nobody. You've, you've already, we've already saw it in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard this has been said, but I say to you, he's the highest authority. Notice the standard for spiritual confrontation and discipline are the scriptures. Not human standards or opinions indicated by the phrase. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. The first time this phrase is stated is for the vested authority by Jesus to Peter as the leading apostle to give the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew sixteen sixteen. The keys of the kingdom, the word of God, to know what is allowed, what is not allowed, what's permitted, what's not permitted in the kingdom of heaven. The standard, the gospel, the word of God. If you're going to allow some, disallow, it has to be written down. 
You have to see the standard, right? It's not subjective. It's not based on emotions. It's based on revelation. This is the second time the phrase appears in the New Testament. The context here of our text refers to church discipline and correction for a sinning believer refusing to repent. The word bind means to tie, fasten, or restrain. The word loose means to unbind or to release. The phrase bound or loosed is the same type of proverb that we've seen before in Matthew 16, having the idea of allowing, disallowing, permitting, and not permitting. Same thing. Exact same context. But the context is different in terms of right here for discipline. Now, the third time that it appears, and it appears one more time, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 23, where there a sinner, you and I, who have repented from our sins, and we preach the gospel to somebody, and we offer them to repent. And if they repent, you have the authority to tell them your sins are loose, they're bound. In other words, they're forgiven. But if they reject the gospel, you say your sins are retained. You are still in your sin. If you die, you will be lost eternally. You have that authority as a regular Christian. Okay? This is the context. All three occasions when these phrases are used, of binding and loosing, refer to acting according to the scriptures, the standard of God's word. The first church council. Acts 15, 6 through 29, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, according to his will. It's the word of God. Now, this text is often interpreted, okay, to mean that we have authority and power to bind Satan in his activities against the gospel believers or situations that really are not even mentioned in this text. Be a good spiritual hound dog. Stay on the trail. Go for the fox. Don't go for the rabbits. People get to this point and they go, ping, and they jump into something else completely out of context. Though certainly we have the authority to come against the attacks of Satan. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, the armor of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, bringing every thought into captivity to the destruction of Satan and that. 1 John 4, 4. All these things and many others. So don't walk out of here saying, I don't believe that we have the authority over uh, darkness and, and demons and that, but not in this context. Not one time are the phrases, listen carefully, bind and loose or pleading the blood of Jesus ever found in the book of Acts or the epistles. They are merely church tradition. And sometimes we even add a little fervor to it. Satan, I bound you! As if he's supposed to be scared or something. <laughs> now, we giggle and say Satanism and demon possession and dealing with Satan is not a laughing matter. But I'm trying to make a point here. The lot of stuff that is taught and repeated is not biblical. We do have authority to come against Jesus. Paul demonstrates this. But the different phrases that think we have special power to bind on all this is ridiculous. Let me give you an example. Here's God. He's dealing, Satan goes before the throne of God 
And, and, and God says, hey, Lou, what are you doing? He says, oh, nothing cruising up and down the earth. And God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? The word consider means a military term, the weakest point to defeat him. He's a righteous man. And here God is testing Job to prove that he's godly, but you're down here binding Satan. Who's going to win? You got to think when you hear pastors speak. Think critically, biblically, so you don't make a jackass of yourself. Simple. All of us have that capacity. Now, all of a sudden, we get to a verse, and we just go, bing, we're off. Stay on the trail. Stay on course. Wise parents come together in agreement to confront and discipline their children out of love. Not because they hate them. If you confront me, you're demonstrating you love me. The attitude we've talked about, it's important. Not self-righteous, not demeaning, but in love. The practice of church discipline for a sitting believer was part of the life of the church. We have examples of that. In uh, 1 Corinthians um, Chapter 5, 1 through 5, Paul rebukes the, the Corinthians because there was this young man that was sleeping with his stepmother, the father of his, uh, the wife of his father. And they weren't saying nothing. They were just, oh, hey, dude, how are you doing this and that? And Paul says, if, if I'm present, if I've already made a judgment. And, and he says, for a little leaven, um, or let me go back up here. He said, for Christ delivered such, let me back up here. He says, as Paul gave the judgment, as present the name of the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. For a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, they were to purge out the old leaven that they may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 7. We don't hand over non-believers to Satan. They belong to Satan. We hand over believers who are rebellious and cantankerous and do not repent for sin in hope that even if it's necessary that they physically lose their life, they may repent before they do. Are we clear on this? Paul wrote about the young man repenting in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 5-8. through 8. Here now he writes to the Corinthians again. He says, you know... I wrote to you guys concerning this guy, and he was, uh, the, there was much sorrow, and, you know, um, and now he's repented, but you, you, you don't want to let him back in. He says in verse 3 of Second uh, Corinthians 2, he says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. But... If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So the guy hasn't grieved me, but you've grieved me. Why? He says, um, he says, but all of you, uh, to some extent, not to be too severe. In other words, they're, 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 they're still kicking them out of the church. This punishment 
which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to affirm your love to him. Now, we're not talking about sweeping things under the carpet. You deal with it, you, you pray, you look at it, and you deal with it, and you allow men, and you, and, and you make some, uh, some uh, direction in all of this. And that's that. But he rebukes them for it. They kicked him out finally. And now they didn't want to. And Paul rebukes them for that part. Wow. The church also had lazy people. Nothing new. Second Thessalonians 3.10 on down. He says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some that walk among you. In a disorderly manner, not walking, at, working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, these guys are legitimately lazy. They're trying to take advantage of you, but don't get so hard-hearted that you really don't help those few that really need the help. Okay. He says, and if anyone does not obey our words in this epistle, listen carefully. Note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Accountability, responsibility, ladies and gentlemen. If your home is like this, your home runs like oil. It's got its little hiccups, but you know how to deal with it, right? Simple. No one can escape the consequence of sin. In Numbers 22, remember when uh, the uh, two and a half tribes said that they were going to help them settle the land, then they would go back and take their own land. And Joshua says, listen, you make sure that you keep your word lest your, or your sin will find you out. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. If he sows to the spirit, of the spirit he will reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not faint. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. This is for you. This is for me. I'm not above you. I'm not different than you. I'm the same. So this is the public confrontation. Third comes the corporate representation, 19 and 20. Look at 19. The confirmation by prayer is for the matters of confronting the sinning brothers we've seen in the church discipline. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The word again could be translated furthermore. It refers back to the previous verse for allowing and disallowing as you're confronting this Believer, to bind on earth, bound, loose, loosen. And I say to you, the supreme authority once again. Notice the unity of two agree on earth concerning anything that they ask. is for the confronting and the disciplining of the unrepentant sinner if it comes. Context, context, stay on trail. The word agree... Symphonio, we get the word symphony from it. Harmony. You agree with the word of God says. You obey God's word. You, have you ever heard somebody play off tune or sing off tune? You say, who's dying? Okay. 
But something that's harmonious is, is beautiful. It's very soothing, right? Regarding anything, underline that, anything, it means what has been done. The business of confronting and discipline, this is the context, and is used for judicial matters like here for church discipline. It's important that you understand how the word is used in the context. Because at this point, people take this verse out of context. At this point, people disjoint the verse from the preceding context and apply it to faith and prayer. But this has nothing to do with our personal faith for our petitions or needs. This is not about prayer for our needs. This is prayer for direction, guidance, depending on God for this discipline. John Wesley used to say, a text out of context is nothing but a pretext. It's commonly used like that in pastors' pulpits today. They, they read their text, and then that's a springboard. They never come back to it. They never expound it. They're all over the map. The context is prayer for the church discipline. Asking God to go before them. Speaking that they speak to the heart of that person, my own heart. Agreeing with scripture. We know what we're to do. We're asking God direction. It says, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Because he honors the word above his name. Now let me ask you and I'll show you the foolishness of the context. Like taken out of context. Does it mean then, when I pray, if there is no one to agree with me, that God won't answer me? He says we're two or three. But it's not talking about prayer, is it? It's talking about church discipline. It shows you to be a foolishness to say that. Right? Simple. It's joint prayer. Affirming the context of church discipline. Agreeing in prayer. Asking God for intervention, action, direction. The love, the wisdom, the preparation. Agreeing in prayer about the scriptures. What it says. What we're to do. It's objective truth. Not subjective reasoning. It's very clear what we have to do. Look at 20. The affirmation of unity is for the glory of Jesus in this church. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The provision for serious discipline is the indication here. For where two or three are gathered together in my name as a witness to their obedience to discipline according to Scripture. This is not a light matter. This is a serious matter. This is leaven in the church. If you don't boot out the leaven, it, it corrupts. You're a parent, you know. If you don't correct your child and he keeps going down and he starts going wayward, he starts getting drinking, then he's drugs, then it's this. Then you get another one day, hey, he's dead. Right? Hmm. The phrase my name means his character, his nature. Not a formula to force the hand of God. In Jesus' name. So God has to give it to me. All the positive confession, the faith, word, people. Boy, they're going to be shocked when they see Jesus. Confronting in the compassion of Christ. Confronting the humility of Christ. Confronting with the love of Christ to forgive and be reconciled. Now, having said all this, let me put this footnote in. There are some people that don't want to reconcile. And there are some people that will tell people that they're trying, but they're liars. 
There are some people that have a personality and a character. They lie all their lives. And some of them are Christians. Some of them are pastors. You do all that you can and you're supposed to and you leave it there. The promise says, I am there in the midst of them. That's what I rest in. To confront sin and call people to repent and be forgiven. To excommunicate those that need be. Now, once again, the context. Does this mean that if I am alone, God is not in the midst of me? It says two or three. If I interpret it for prayer, then how does that work? But if I keep the context for church discipline, two or three, then it, make, it makes sense, right? He's agreeing. He's being one with the decisions, right? Because it's according to God's word. And obedience to God's word. Parents stand together, uncompromising, as godly people, as a witness to God's word, even when their hearts are torn and broken by a rebellious child. They stand faithful to God, ladies and gentlemen. Do not be a friend to your children before being a parent. You be the best parent, and one day you'll be the best of friends. The practice of Matthew 18 for the church discipline today in our modern church is unheard of. It's been torn out. It's willful disobedience. Today we live in an amoral society, the American new morality. Do what you want. There's nothing wrong. Marriage is outlived, they say. It's useless. So you can just cohabit, do whatever you want. Just like dogs, animals, no big deal. Hmm. The politically correct culture condemns all moral and ethical judgment by people and society. Our educators, our universities, our politicians. But they didn't save you, did they? Jesus did. So the church today has embraced some, if not all, of these values and standards, declaring that they... um. Just want to be loving. They don't want to judge people. When in fact they only love themselves, not wanting to be disliked or opposed or even persecuted. Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke 6.26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. The common responses of lukewarm churches and Christians today are several. Let me give you some. We don't care about doctrine. We just want to love people unconditionally. Yet God and the Bible judges all people to be sinners in need of repentance and a change of heart to be called a Christian. Second Corinthians 5.21, new creation, all things pass away. Contradiction. Or we're all inclusive, except every diversity, regardless what the Bible says, because there are errors in the Bible. First of all, they're misdefining diversity. Diversity means different, not the same. So they redefine. Thanks to Obama, we've redefined our language to politically correct. There's no um, terrorism. It's overseas contingency. You're not sure. You're vertically challenged. 
Wow. The Bible makes it very clear that all scriptures given by inspiration of God, proper for doctrine, correction, instruction, the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. What you possess in your life, ladies and gentlemen, is God's inerrant infallible word. And if you can't trust it, you might as well hang it up. If you say God is for you and with you, then listen to his words. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will or desire, and it shall be done to you. John fifteen seven. How are we doing? And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke fourteen twenty seven. How are we doing? Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Second John nine. Abide means you are a Christian. A non-believer is not abiding. He's talking to Christians. So if you're a Calvinist, I don't know what you're going to do about that. Context, context, context. This is the corporate representation. Pretty heavy text, isn't it? Wow. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You better believe it. You better thank God for God's word. This makes you wise, courageous, and effective for life. Not confused. You know where you stand. And you can do no other. This is the process to confront the believer that has sinned against another. To be reconciled. Characterized by the private confrontation. Then the public confrontation. Then the corporate representation. Laid out simply. But so effective. May God give us wisdom. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. And now give us the courage to trust and depend upon you to live it out. Individually and as a church. And the Lord, you may be honored. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Because he loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to transform your life. He wants to open your eyes so that you can see life for what it really is and what is really valuable. What is a diamond and what is a dirt clod. You can ask him right now where you're at. Whether you're here over the internet or out there in the world somewhere. A prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. He's going to forgive you of your sins right where you're at. This is your prayer to Jesus. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.